Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast, the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. I'm your host, Todd Hicksonball, and Caleb's being a bum somewhere and isn't with us today. However, he was able to do the interview today that we're about to listen to that I'm so excited to bring to you. So the guy who we interviewed today, his name is Chris Hewitts. And he's an author and a person who is just really awesome. So Chris wrote a book, and it it focuses on this ancient personality test thing called the Enneagram. Um, And and what it does is it's something that helps us identify different types that uh, that, that we are. And and it's really interesting because what what it showed me as I was reading through the book is, is just some of my tendencies and things that I might not even necessarily know about myself. And it really kind of helped me to see those things. But here's the cool part. The book actually takes that and it, and it shows you then spiritually how this works out in our lives. It's just a really interesting book and it's a really interesting conversation. And so Caleb and I were just so excited to be able to bring you this interview with Chris Hewitts. And we're gonna go to that interview right now. Well, Chris, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast to be talking about the Enneagram today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to, great to be with you. You know, just as we kind of get started, for people who may not be um, very familiar with the Enneagram, can you just tell our audience a little bit about it and kind of what it is? Sure. So the Enneagram is actually um, sort of on the on the rise of sort of the edge of, of popular culture and, and especially within, I think, um, sort of religious spaces. Um, unfortunately, the Enneagram is often reduced to sort of a, a personality tool. And I think that's how a lot of people come across it. I think that's a lot, how a lot of people are introduced to it. But actually, I, I think that the Enneagram is actually a, a teaching that shows us the way that our, our personality is our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around a childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. Mm-hmm. And if you really sort of peel that back for a second, think about that, then it actually has almost nothing to do with personality and everything to do with essence. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I think, sort of a, a, a deep, deep dive on a quick stab. But um, to make it really simple, the Enneagram sort of shows us the nine archetypes of human character structure. And um, those nine archetypes are, are, are sort of diagrammed against this circle um, as nine points that are interconnected and, and interrelated. Um, these, these nine points, how I was, was taught this um, almost 20 years ago, um, sort of cycle through a list of, of fundamental needs, right? And so type one, um, and this is, is really some, from some of the teaching of, of Father Richard Rohr and the Jesuits who introduced him to this um, in, in the 1970s and 80s. But type one is the need to be perfect. Type two is the need to be needed. Type three is the need to succeed. Type four is the need to be unique or special. Type five is the need to um, understand. Type six is the need to be secure. Type seven is the need to avoid pain. And type eight is the need to be against. And finally, type nine is, is simply the need to avoid. Mm-hmm. And how how would you say? I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but how is the Enneagram different from like Myers Briggs or Strength Finders or something like that? Sure. So 
I, I was actually uh, certified as a strengths coach um, from Gallup University in, in the Strengths Finders assessment tool. And, and what Strengths Finders sort of shows you is your innate uh, talent themes, right? So I used to I used to introduce it like this, and maybe you've heard this that when uh, Michael Jordan was in, in in tenth grade, he actually didn't he tried out for the basketball team, but he didn't make he got cut from the basketball team. It, it wasn't because Michael Jordan clearly didn't have sort of raw talent. It, it was that his talent hadn't been coached, his talent had been had not been developed into a strength. And so what the strengths finders shows you is these innate talent themes that, that everybody possesses. And, and there's a list of 34 and it just says, hey, here's the things that you're, you're naturally gifted in. Here's the things where you have um, strong affinities towards success in. And what you need to do is identify those and, uh, and really grow with them. And as you grow with them, what you'll see is, is, is your abilities to be the most sort of effective version of yourself. Now, the Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs um, was um, sort of a riff off of some of the Jungian work around temperament, right? And, and, and we would sort of say that Carl Jung got about halfway there, um, but then the Myers-Briggs took it the other half. And, and what they say is our, our, our temperament's made up of, of essentially four sort of building blocks. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's widely agreed that our temperament may change. Um, you know, I've, I've heard that as we get older, we naturally may become more introverted. But the Enneagram, I, I think, is really fundamentally different. This isn't about um, the things that, that we are going to, to, to succeed in in life. And this isn't about a, a temperament that changes. This is fundamentally uh, about excavating our essence, who our true self is, what our essential nature is. It, it shows us the, the, the very purpose for, for why we're born, and it shows us the the, the unique gift that we're supposed to bring forward when we can reconnect with it. Mm -hmm. And can you, can you just walk us and just give us maybe one or two sentences about each type, you know, one through nine. And I know that, you know, that we're, I'm, we're painting in a broad brush right here for the, the one through nine, you know, especially whenever you look at the Enneagram, you know, with the different wings and everybody has, you know, a, a little bit of each number inside of them but can you kind of walk us through what each one is or give us a couple sure. sentence description yeah so so usually when when folks are introduced to this they're introduced to these types types one through type nine through a, a couple different names or handles and these are the names that um the folks at the enneagram institute have brought forward and, and oftentimes um, folks will also bring forward helen palmer's uh names or handles from enneagram in the narrative tradition I can introduce some of those to you, but I, I generally like to stay away from those because those mm -hmm. are more social functions or roles that that types play. Mm -hmm. So I'll try to I'll try to give you a quick snapshot of, of the essence of each type. So type one, type one, sometimes called the the, the reformer um, or the perfectionist, and and these are the folks who are fundamentally afraid that for some reason that they can't figure out they are inherently flawed. But but the truth is is they're not. In fact, the truth is is they're the best people we know. They're they're principled. They're they're moral. They're they're they're, they're they they have this drive for excellence in all things. And all they really ache to do is is to build goodness out in the world. Um, what that does though is that 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 leads to a lot of inner resentment because they realize that their own flaws are are, are part of the reason the world isn't perfect. And so as as frustrated idealists. We have to have a ton of compassion for our friends who are dominant type one because they, uh, they're doing their best. In fact, they're usually doing better than the rest of us. 
Type two is sometimes called the, the helper or the or the giver, and these folks are, are fundamentally just a source of, of benevolent love in the world. They're they're just you know not to to make this gendered at all because it's not, but they're a source of nurturing energy, and so they're the embrace that that we all long to be held in. They uh, they give of themselves freely, and 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 to their own detriment, they often give themselves away at their expense, and so that leads to this form of of self abnegation which, you know, is sort of a, a kind of false humility, which is a cousin of pride. And that pride is that they're supposed to give themselves away. Um, but, you know, if you're dominant in type two, or if you have friends who are dominant in type two, it's, it's really um, letting them let themselves be loved and learning how to love them the way that they want to be loved. Because they'll generally take love on our terms and, and they'll suffer quietly for it as they try to love us back even, even better. Type three is sometimes called the um, the performer or the achiever, right? This is this need to succeed. And these folks' um, childhood wound was really to their heart. As little kids, um, there was a sense of disconnect from their emotional center, and, and they were very confused about the difference between admiration and attention and, and true love. And so they spend their whole lives chasing love by being seen, by, by accomplishing everything that they, they set out to do. Um, how they do that, though, is they, they play roles. So they have this sort of chameleon-esque ability to, to be whatever's needed to be in whatever room they're in for the social good. And uh, it's, it's, really, it's really important if you're dominant in type three to, to realize that you are not what you do. Um, you are not what other people think about you. But, but you're good enough and that you actually are a source of value that you don't have to earn. Right? Type four. This is sometimes called the, the 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 romantic or the individualist. This is the need to be unique. These are the folks who ache to reconnect with their true self. And and what's amazing about folks who are dominant type four is that they see beauty and significance in everything. It's just that they can't see it for themselves, and so they they fall into this sort of addictive loop of, of fantasizing and longing for what they think everybody else has that they don't, which keeps them keeps them trapped. So if you're dominant type four, it's important for you to know that you're, you're, you're beautiful just as you are. You're perfect. You're not missing anything. And, and the very things that, that you see in all of us that you can so effortlessly sort of celebrate and draw forward um, are, are also there with you, right? You're enough. Type five. Type five sometimes called the um, investigator or the observer. I, I like in, in Spanish, they, they call folks who are dominant type five the theorist. And this is the need to understand. These folks are, are really up in their heads. They're, they're all about sussing out the answers. And and, and it's a huge stressor for them to actually be given sort of a deadline on analysis or research because there's always so much more that they can learn. So they withdraw and they withdraw into their mental space. And, and, and it's very difficult if you're dominant type five because that's often misunderstood. It's misunderstood as aloofness. It's misunderstood as, as sort of a, a form of, of stinginess or a, a form of sort of selfish self-preservation and isolation and an and, and introversion. But that's actually not it at all because folks who are dominant type five are actually finding solutions for the rest of us. In fact, they realize that we don't even know what the right questions are to ask. And so they're going to take it upon them to, to do that for us. Um, folks who are dominant type six are sometimes called the loyalist or, or the skeptic. This is the need to be secure. And these folks are um, right there in the middle of the head center but they're so disconnected from their head because they've overthought every worst case scenario as a way of creating stability for those that they love. And, and in this 
running down the sort of loops of every worst case scenario, they um, really go to some pretty, pretty fearful places. And so on the lookout, constantly threat forecasting, they're, they're looking to be brave, but they second guess themselves as a way of keeping us safe. And, and so, you know, if you're dominant type six, it's like you have to remember you are courageous, right? You are faithful. We will, will follow your faith, right? Type seven. Type seven is sometimes called the enthusiast. This is the need to avoid. And, and these folks are just in every beautiful way, absolute, absolutely ridiculous. Always sort of chasing down options and opportunities. They're a, a source of, of jovial freedom in the world. And, and this is because they're afraid of facing their own pain. So what they do is they overdo everything that brings them pleasure so that they don't have to face their pain. And in not having to face their own pain, um, they, they can get close to other people's pains and they can take us on vacation from ours. Type 8 is sometimes called the challenger. This is the need to be against. These are the folks who hate bullies, but they're the biggest bully. They're, they're too much for everyone. They um, just pick fights as a way of building trust, and they, and they pick fights as a way of sort of sizing people up to see how safe folks are. Um, they always choose the underdog because eights are always trying to protect the little child in them that was never sort of free to, to experience their own childhood. And, um, and so type eights um, get themselves in trouble. They, 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 they really hate not being in control, so they exert and overexert control. And then type nine is called the, sometimes called the mediator or the peacemaker. And these are the, the folks who just want to sort of reconcile the entire world but primarily the external world. And so they keep forgetting to reconcile their own internal minds, their own internal lives, their own sort of personal drama. And that catches up to them because that sort of self-forgetting of the person who's dominant in type nine has to, has to be contended with at some point or another. And so as good and kind of, of, of arbitrators as they can be, as, as fair and safe referees as they can be, um, if you're dominant type nine, it's you, you have to ask yourself, what are the things that you need to do for yourself? What are the things that you've been putting off? And, and what are the things that would really help you be better in terms of your relationships and your vocational fidelity if you gave yourself the, the proper attention that, that you deserve? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things, you know, I was as I was reading um, the, the Sacred Enneagram, the book that you wrote, and I was talking with it about um, with my co-host Todd. And, you know, we were looking through some of the path, the passions that you outline through the book and Todd is a type two. And so his passion is uh, pride and I'm a type three and my passion is deceit. And the interesting thing was, you know, as we were talking, we were realizing that, you know, to ourselves, our own passion, like mine being deceit and his being pride felt so much worse than the other person's like passion. Like I thought, man, I would much rather have to deal with pride than deceit. And he was like, I'd much rather have to deal with deceit rather than pride. Why, why do you think it is that, you know, whenever we look at our own passions and kind of like the ugliness of us, why, I mean, why would we rather have someone else's passion versus sure. us? So, so, so the passions were one of the, the 108 Enneagrams that this Boliv Bolivian wisdom teacher by the name of Oscar Ichazo brought forward in, 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 in the, the 60s and 70s. And, and what Ichazo and then his, one of his students, a Chilean therapist Claudio Naranjo suggested, were that the passions really are how our soul 
thirsts for our disconnect from presence, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're dominant in, in, in type two and, and you really are a source of love in the world, but you've somehow been disconnected from that, then, then, then how, do you, how do you cope with that ache, that disconnect? Well, you give yourself away and you give and you give just like the giving tree from that little kid's book. You, you pour yourself out at your own expense until you have nothing left. And then you convince yourself that what you just did was actually loving when in fact, there was no self-love in it. And so when you, you come across these passions, I, there's two things that, that are in play here. Number one, they've been assigned words that are, are traditionally um, traditionally known as the nine capital sins. And, and I actually fundamentally believe that your passion is not a sin. It becomes sinful or it can become sinful when it becomes addictive, when mm -hmm. it becomes overused. But first and foremost, I think you have to realize that this is your best tool to find your way home. It's just an inadequate tool. And when you over-rely on it, you get stuck. Secondly, though, into your question, it's humiliating for our egos to be exposed. It's humiliating for our, our, our subconscious and unconscious to be outed. Um, and especially in the ways where we're not being true to ourselves and where we are overusing inadequate and inappropriate tools to, to, to reconnect with our true self. So that usually happens when somebody comes across the Enneagram and, and, and they learn about their type and they, and they specifically see their passion um, it can be very troubling or upsetting or, or devastating to their ego because our egos are, are always hiding behind masks. And when those masks are taken off, not by us, but for us, and we don't have control over the sort of exposing of that, it, it, it feels like sort of a, a forced shaming or we feel embarrassed about it, you know, but, mm -hmm. but there's no need to be. So talk, talk to us a little bit, you know, you also mentioned in the book about the intelligence centers. Can you kind of tell us, you know, kind of what they are and how they work inside of the Enneagram? Sure. So, so the intelligence centers is, is, is really how the Enneagram um, in its modern form um, was brought back to us. And this would have been uh, 101 years ago by a Turkish Armenian guy by the name of George Gurdjieff. And, and George Gurdjieff um, is, is sort of credited for the, the, let's say, the rediscovery of the Enneagram, because the Enneagram might be 6,000 years old. It might be 1,400 years old. It might be 800 years old. It might be 101 years old. But if it was a reclaiming or an unearthing of it, you know, Gurdjieff really only taught it through the moving center, through the heart, and, and, and through sort of our cognitive or, or thinking center. And so the Enneagram starts with these three centers, your body, your heart, and your mind, or your instincts, your feelings, or emotions, and your thoughts. And so if you're dominant in types eight, nine, or one, you're there in your body. You're a gut type person. If you're dominant in two, three, or four, you're, you're there in your heart. You're an emotional or feeling type person. And if you're a five, six, or seven, you're, you're a head type or a thinking person. Well, what, what the intelligence centers teach us is this is our primary mode of perceiving the world. We see them through our instincts, our feelings, or our thoughts. But what the, the intelligence centers also teach us is this is our primary mode for practicing discernment. This is where we learn to sort of figure out what is good, true, and beautiful by trusting this center. So, you know, when I, when I was a little kid, you know, one of my little sisters, um, I think, is, is dominant in type 2. 
And so she's, she's a heart type. And, and I remember when we were little kids, adults telling my little sister, Hey, you can't trust your feelings. Like think this through when, in fact, if she's in her heart, she has to learn to trust her feelings because they're going to tell her something that her, her, her body or her, 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 her thoughts can't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, I think that the easiest way to, to sort of begin to do some work on yourself and with yourself in the Enneagram is starting with your intelligence center and realizing that your intelligence center is, is your go-to gift. It's the, the inherent internal wisdom that God's given you to sort of be able to figure out everything that you, you, you're, you're, you're faced with and contending with. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that, you know, the Enneagram talks about is moving towards integration or moving towards more of like the healthy version of yourself and then disintegration and more of the unhealthy version of yourself. So can you talk to us about like, what are the, what are some of the things that tend to lead us into disintegration and what are some of the things or our unhealthy selves? And what are some of the things that lead us into our healthy selves more? Right. So this, I actually think is one of the, the great misunderstandings of the Enneagram mm -hmm. uh, is these paths of integration and disintegration. So if you look at the, the drawing of the Enneagram, you see all these, these lines that, that connect it. And um, essentially, what these these lines are connecting is our our paths um, from or towards and and to in a way from from the best of ourselves. So so what we would say in integration, you know, if you're dominant in type one, you would integrate towards the seven. If you're dominant in type two, you'd integrate towards the four. Dominant in type three, you'd integrate towards the six. Dominant in type four, you'd integrate towards the one. Dominant type five, you'd integrate towards the eight. Dominant type seven, you'd integrate towards the five. Dominant type eight, towards the two. And dominant type nine, towards the three. And then, of course, you turn those around, and that's your disintegration. What, what we're saying in integration is this. At, at my best, I, I become a healthy eight. I don't become a healthy two in integration. But at my best, I become a healthy eight. And I get to reach out and borrow the positive traits, some of the positive traits of type two mm -hmm. as just sort of supplemental add-ons to, to, to my goodness. Now, people get confused, and I think they think that the, the same is true of disintegration, that when I'm not well, I just reach out and I, and I borrow the unhealthy traits of my stress point. But I, I, I sort of like to, 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 to image it like this. Say you're a little boy or a little girl and you're climbing a tree and you slip and fall. Well, if you don't reach out and grab a branch, you're going to hit the ground and, and break your back. So what do you do? You have this innate, unconscious self-preservation instinct, and you, and you reach out and grab a branch on your way down to stop the fall or to slow down the fall. And essentially, that's exactly what your path of disintegration is, is it's you stopping yourself from getting worse. It's you stopping yourself from listening to your Enneagram type's basic fear and moving it down this nine wrong ladder of psycho-spiritual health. Because every Enneagram type has a basic fear, and every Enneagram type's basic fear gets malformed in nine different ways. Well, once you get halfway down that ladder, once that basic fear has become an even more outrageous lie, and you're believing it, you're in big trouble. And, and, and so what you do, just like you're falling out of a tree, is you try to stop your fall. Because if you don't stop your fall and you get to the lowest le levels of your psycho-spiritual health, you're, you need to be incarcerated. You need to be in rehab. You need an intervention. So your path to disintegration is actually helpful. It helps you stop a fall when you're not doing well. 
But it's not just arbitrary. It's when you're not doing well is specifically linked to the malformed version of your basic fear that you just keep letting get worse and darker and, 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 and more and more dishonest. So that because I'd, ne- I'd never heard of it that way. So the disintegration actually stops us from actually hitting rock bottom. Is that yes, correct? Okay. For sure. So what it is specifically then is it's not borrowing the low-level traits of your stress point or the the type that you disintegrate towards, Mm -hmm. but it's specifically borrowing the low-level manipulation techniques of that type. And if you can actually observe those, if you can actually sort of figure out what those are, then you're actually able to sort of self-correct because you see yourself in disintegration. Mm-hmm. And that's what we, we say all the time, that if you can't um, self-observe, you can't self-correct. And so this is, is part of it. It's, it's becoming aware of what happens when you're losing control, when you're, when you're falling. So let me, let, me, let me use me as an example to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. So I'm, I'm a three, or I, I'm pretty sure I'm a three. And so as I disintegrate, I become more like the nine, correct? Well, no. When you disintegrate, if you're dominant in type three, mm-hmm. you, you keep believing a worse and worse version of this basic fear that, that you do not have inherent value, mm-hmm. that, that you are falling behind, that, that the rules you've played um, are becoming obvious lies to the people around you. And, and the more you believe the diminishment of that fear, the more you, you actually reach out and in disintegration, borrow the low-level manipulation techniques of somebody who's dominant in type 9, which okay. is, I give up. I can't win, mm-hmm. so now I give in. And by giving in, you're, you're trying to manipulate a situation so that you still win it in a certain way. So, like, if you've ever been in a fight with someone and it's like, um, okay, have, have it your way. You get whatever you want. Well, nobody mm-hmm. feels like they won the fight. And so, in a sense, you still win. But you win by giving in, <laughs> like a like a nine would. Yeah. So, okay. Sort of yeah. a bummer. <laughs> yeah, that make okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so once you know, once you start learning about things through the enneagram, you know, how would someone start using that information that they've learned about themselves in the enneagram? Well, so that's the real challenge in 2017, isn't it? We. Uh, and we're seeing a ton of books uh, fly off the shelves about the Enneagram. And sadly, most of them are the kind of books where you can pick it up, find your type, okay, type three, turn to page 41, read 27 pages about your type and set the book down. And, and all that does, for, for the most part, is, is fuels your sense of, of, of narcissism. Mm-hmm. So what I have tried to do in, in my new book, The Sacred Enneagram, is to say once you learn some things about the Enneagram, and once you sort of figure this out, once you determine your type and, and you know what you're contending with here, then actually how do you take your type um, into your prayer life? How do you take your type and use it for spiritual growth? And, and, I, and I love that idea because one of my teachers, um, Russ Hudson, who's a co-author of uh, the, the, the Wisdom of the Enneagram, frequently says, type is less about nine kinds of people and more about nine paths to God. And I think that's really one of the great invitations here with the Enneagram is to sort of determine what does your path to God look like? You know, it's, it's tricky in 2017, man. Everybody sort of finds different ways to worship. And, and, and some of those are, are great, you know. 
Um, but sometimes we're, we're worn out with the same old, same old. Some of us just can't stand to, to, to walk into another auditorium, do group karaoke for 25 minutes, listen to a 40-minute lecture, and, and then pay our, our cover mm-hmm. as plates are passed around. That's, that's done. It's, it's thin. Others of us can't stand liturgy or reading sacred texts. I mean, whatever it is, like, at a certain point in our own faith formation, in our own spiritual journeys, the, the things that have and used to work for us won't. And I think what the Enneagram exposes is, well, there is a better way. And there's a way that's tethered to the essence of, of who you truly are. And if you could align yourself with that, man, it's, uh, it really is like a homecoming. Mm-hmm. How, or can, can you talk a little bit about the, the prayer postures that you talk about in the book? Sure. So, so what I do in the book is I, as I take these intelligence centers, the, the, the body types, the heart types, and the head types, and I actually try to align them with contemplative prayer postures, either solitude, silence, or stillness. And, and solitude, silence, and stillness, I think, are, are the overcorrections to what's out of control in our lives right now. Solitude, silence, and stillness aren't ways of praying, but they're ways that we hold our prayer practices. And so we hold them in interior solitude, interior silence, and interior, interior stillness. And, and so what I say for the body types is, is that this is, is really an invitation for interior stillness. If you're an eight, stop fighting for justice. If you're nine, nine stop reconciling the, the external world. And if you're a one, stop trying to fix yourself and everybody else. But just be still and allow that to be how you bring your prayer forward. If you're in your heart, the twos, the threes, and the fours, I, I suggest that it's solitude, right? Twos, who are you when you're not serving or loving or giving to someone? Threes, who are you when you're not being seen through, through your accomplishments? And fours, who are you when you've lost your sense of self and you're wanting that to be mirrored by someone else? Well, you have to go to a place of interior solitude to find the truth of that. And it's in being alone that you will know who you truly are. And then for the, the head types of fives, the six, and the sevens, what I'm, I'm suggesting is silence is, is the posture for your own contemplative, your own contemplative practices. Fives, uh, turn down the noise and, and stop asking the questions. Sixes, turn down the noise and stop threat forecasting. And sevens, turn down the noise and stop thinking about what's next and just be present. And I think if you can align your type in those ways with, with um, these, these, these contemplative prayer postures, suddenly I, I think our practices take, take even deeper root and, and actually lead to, I think, a, a more profound centering. Can you talk about how the Enneagram plays itself out in you know, relationships, dating, marriage, or friendships? So there is some really great material out there on that. Helen Palmer's book called uh, The Enneagram in Love and Work is um, a, a real practical guide. It takes all nine types and it sort of shuffles the deck against all nine types and says, hey, your dominant type one and your partner's a type one, here's the, the gifts and the challenges. If you're dominant type one and your partner's a type two, here's the gifts and the challenges. And like I said, it's, it's, it's in love and in work. So it's professionally and, and personally. Um, so that's a good starting point. Um, the, the Enneagram also shows us our, our our Enneagram styles or types, conflict avoidance style, what we bring to de-escalate conflict. And, and you know, what, what you have to learn about that is if you are mismatched with your partner or somebody that you work with, um, then a lot of your conflict is typically not about the things you're fighting about, but it was how you got into the conflict. 
Um, and if you can't see that, that's why it's really hard to actually find resolution in conflicts that shouldn't be that big of a deal. Uh, another thing the Enneagram teaches us is our, our type social style and, and what we need in our social relationships. If it's autonomy for, for the um, gut types, if it's affection for the heart types, or if it's security for, for the head types. And it shows us the different ways that we go about getting those by, by moving against with or, or towards people by being aggressive and assertive, by being compliant to our super egos, um, or really by detaching with drawing as a way of drawing people towards us. So there, there's so much there. And, and really, you know, it's, I, I like to say this, I like to say that the Enneagram is sort of a, 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 a fractal of triads, that it just keeps breaking itself out and proving itself in, in sort of patterns of three which make it really easy to sort of follow and, and makes it really easy to sort of self-observe. Mm -hmm. One of the things that um, you've talked about in this venue and you keep coming back to over again in your book is just the childhood wound and the impact that it has on us. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, what do you mean by the like a childhood wound and then the impact that it ends up having on us? Sure. So the childhood wounds in the Enneagram are sort of, um, they're, they're traditionally sort of taught as, as what disconnected us from our essence. And I, I, I sort of take issue with that in my book, and I actually sort of reframe the childhood wounds as more of a sort of confirmation bias of our type. It's how we prove to ourselves when we're two, three, four, or five, that how we're coping with our disconnect from essence is a legitimate coping mechanism. So, you know, I, I think an easy way to start with the, the so-called childhood wounds is to say, where was that wound introduced? And, and number one, it's not an, a wound that your parent or parents intentionally did to you. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really sort of an assault or an attack on your primary intelligence center, either your body, your heart, or your head. And, and, and again, when I say this, I, I don't mean like a, a physical attack against your body, but really more your instincts, your feelings, or your thoughts, right? What happens when, when we're two, three, four, or five, right? When we start to learn how to pretend, when we start to turn how, learn how to tell lies, is, is we lose our original innocence. And what happens at that point in our life is we're sort of welcomed into the human condition, which, you know, isn't easy. It's, it's not fair. It's not always safe. Um, there is pain, even for the best of us. And, and because moving from this original innocence in, into our humanity can be so jarring, we, we can't understand it. And so what we do is, is we learn to cope with it. And that's what I mean by confirmation bias. So if my childhood wound is, as somebody who's dominant type eight was against my instincts, if my childhood wound was, hey, I had to, to forfeit part of my childhood to grow up too quickly, and now I'm trying to protect the little child within me, that, that may or may not have actually happened to me, but it was how I coped with the loss of my innocence. I am no longer a child, and not being a child scares me or causes uncertainty in me or causes me to, to eve, uh, grieve or ache what, 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 what is now being forfeited. And so then I live out of that. And, and living out of that becomes another one of these sort of addictions that the Enneagram shows us. Um, what we, we have to do with these childhood wounds is, is be honest about them, that our parent and parents didn't introduce this particular wound in our childhood. And so what we have to do is sort of take the blame off of them um, 
at the same time, we can't sort of blame ourselves because when we're two, three, four, or five, we don't have the, the, the sort of psychological construct or framework to accurately and adequately narrate our own human experience. So what we get to do with them is, is to press in with them and, and to face them and, and to receive them as invitations for, for wholeness and for healing. How has the Enneagram helped you and talk to us about the impact that it's had on you? Well, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's compassionate and it teaches self-compassion. It's, it's severe because it exposes our, our addictions. It's, it's gentle because it introduces us to our, our, our purpose for being. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd say that like working with my type, um, in my contemplative practices, working in, with my type, um, with my, my spiritual director, uh, working with my type, with, with my therapist, uh, working with my type in my marriage have, have all just led to um, sort of inner refinement. It, it's led to sort of more truthfulness in, in who I am and, and, and what I can offer as well as where I'm going to, to be vulnerable and, and where I'm going to get stuck. And, uh, and so it's, 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 a, it's a huge grace. It's a, it's a huge support. It's, you know, it's like the, the rails that you would want to set your, your spiritual journey on. Um, because that's all that it is. It's just this sort of sacred map of our soul. And we know that the, the, the map isn't the journey, but man, it, it sure can inform the journey. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about the importance of compassion and grace towards, you know, towards ourselves as, you know, as we explore the Enneagram, you know, I'm sure there's the tendency, you know, as I was talking about earlier to kind of get down on ourselves of why do I have to you know, why do I have to deal with this or kind of like the ugliness that we sometimes see on ourselves? Can you talk to us about the role of grace and compassion towards ourselves in that? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is one of the, this is one of the things that I, I think a lot of us really don't do well. And, and, and that is, you know, I, I, I did 20 years of international humanitarian work. And one of the things that was, was constantly a problem for all of us was that we did a better job of taking care of somebody else than, than we were ourselves. And if you think about that, almost every decent human being has been guilty of that as well. But you see, in, in the scriptures, we're, we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, 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 most of us don't love ourselves or we don't love ourselves well. And so we think that sort of trying to love someone else is one way to get in touch with love. Well, if we don't love ourselves well, then we're, we're actually not loving each other very well either. And And so... You know, the, 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 the invitation to grace here is, is, is for compassion, for compassion for yourself. That, like, you're, you're suffering just like every other person from your disconnect from essence. And, and that suffering is, is what causes us to act out, to play out, to, 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 to live into harmful and destructive patterns and behaviors. And if we're going to beat ourselves up or we're going to resist those things, we're, we're never going to, to, to face them. And so, you know, just like that, that line from a Robert Frost poem, the best way out is through. In, in compassion, we give ourselves to those, and we learn to, to make peace with those, and we learn to rest with those. And that's when I, I think, really, we, we become more connected to, to love and more connected to our, ourselves. Chris, if people want to learn more about the Enneagram or more about your work and find the book, where and how can they do that? Sure. So you can go to um, sacredenneagram.org, and um, there's a, a list of workshops that, that my nonprofit, Gravity, hosts um, all over North America. We, we, we also do these in, in places like 
uh, New Zealand and uh, and um, South Africa and, and Morocco and Cambodia and Thailand. Um, and then you can pick up a copy of the book, The Sacred Enneagram. And uh, look, I, I, I realized that um, while I was writing this, that, that my book might be the first Enneagram book that, that people will read. So there is some introduction stuff in there. There's a little bit of history and context. But I, I, I think what's unique about the book, and, and it's really what I intended to do, was try to move the conversation forward, is that it becomes very practical. This is what you do with type when you learn how to pray with type. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I would agree. Yours is the first book that I've read about the Enneagram that, as you said earlier, it doesn't just describe the the types. It actually gives you some practical stuff that, hey, here's how you can do and here's how you can move towards you know a healthy version of yourself with the prayer postures and everything. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast, Chris. We've loved learning from you about the Enneagram and about ourselves. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you having me. Yep. I think the major thing that after listening to that interview that I, I, I took away is the reason why it's so important to understand ourselves and how understanding ourselves helps us to better worship God. Well, hey, if you enjoyed today this week's episode, uh, you're going to want to turn in for our episode next week. Here's the reason why. We are interviewing a guy who is, get this, a comic book ambassador. Van Jensen will be on our podcast next week, and we are so excited to be able to bring that to you. Now, if you've enjoyed this week's episode, we would appreciate it if you leave a rating and write a review for the podcast. It just helps us to get the word out about our show, and it would be something that we would love for you to do for us. Now, until next time, keep learning and keep growing.